0: At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Galatians chapter 3, picking up there in verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the living God. And we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Almighty God, now we pray that you might incline our hearts to hear. our minds to be enlarged, that our souls might love Christ more as we hear your word. Keep us from error and from confusion. Help us this Lord's Day evening to glean the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 This Lord's Day evening, My aim is simple. I want us to see from the word of God that the law, that seeking to be an obedient one to God, that faithfulness in how we live our lives, these things, while commendable and good, are not the gospel. My aim this evening is for us to see that the law of God is necessary, but that it is not the gospel. I guess if I were to say it differently, my singular aim would be that if there is any confusion in any of our hearts about where faithfulness to God versus the faithfulness of Jesus Christ differ, we might understand That we are saved by Christ's faithfulness and not our own. The law is necessary, as we shall see. But it is not the gospel. Perhaps we could say it one other way. The reformation of the 15 and 16 hundreds was absolutely necessary. We just celebrated the glorious reality of God, preserving his people, his church down through the ages. But one thing that we ought to be mindful of is that every generation needs to consider the truth that sometimes there can be confusion even in our day. Let me say it even more specifically. Even in some Reformed circles, there can be subtle confusion about the difference between law and gospel. And it is that distinction that we want to look at tonight. Now, we are diving into Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. There's much that's come before this, and I just want to give you a brief overview. First, the overview of what's come prior to our text. Galatians chapter 3 begins this way. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In other words, how are you saved? How did the spirit of God come to you, Galatians, by faith or by the works of the law? But then Paul moves further, doesn't he? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. The context here, of course, in one of Paul's earliest letters, if not the earliest in the New Testament, is the sense. That he is gripped by the reality that false teachers have come into the churches, particularly the church at Galatia, and sought to convince them that you must add the keeping of the law, namely circumcision, to the work of Christ in order to be saved. So he comes to these believers and says, who has bewitched you? Who has turned you off of the understanding that it is by faith alone in Christ alone, by his grace alone, that you are saved? Now, lest we think that Paul wants to throw off any kind of obedience in the life of the believer in the book of Galatians and the book of Romans, many other places. He clearly makes it known that believers are to keep God's law out of gratitude, to glorify God, that we are called to obey, that the call to obey hasn't gone away, but that salvation is not begun or perfected. By keeping the law. Then we read in chapter 3, 10 and following the discussion of the curse, which Christ has taken for us. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. You see, when you are under law, you are under the full requirement of all that it says, including its curses. But he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How is it that he's done that? He has become a curse For us, according to the very law itself, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Christ being cursed was that we, verse 14, might receive the blessing of Abraham, the Gentiles even in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. And then he moves into that great discussion in verse 16, doesn't he, of the offspring? Look there. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was four hundred and thirty years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. That it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of law, it is no longer of promise. This is a crucial distinction. Believer, how does the inheritance that you have been given through Christ come to you? Does it come to you through your keeping of the law, either as works or even as a covenant? Or does it come to you through faith, specifically promise? Or if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And there's the discussion here of how the giving of the law through Moses coming after God's promise to Abraham. You remember that the New Testament says that God preached the gospel to Abraham, that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The law doesn't change God's promise to Abraham some four hundred and thirty years later. And then Paul asks this question, what purpose then does the law serve? And that's where we begin our text this evening. Two particular things that I want us to see, and they both relate to that theme that we began with. The first is this. The law is not the gospel. The law is not the gospel. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, is there any confusion about this? Are there believers who are saying that the law is the gospel? Well, not overtly, but there can be a great confusion if we're not absolutely clear about the distinction between law and gospel. So let's look to the text. Again, number one, the law is not the gospel. Paul says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions or sins, iniquities, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. This takes us right back up to that discussion of verse 16, that to Abraham and his seed, namely Christ, the promises were made till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And then there's discussion of how this came about, this law coming through the hand of angelic messengers. Deuteronomy 33 two, Acts 753, Hebrews 2 two. they all point to the role of angels, as it were, in the giving of the law. The text continues now, a mediator does not mediate for only one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Now, notice the question. There are two categories here. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. You see, in all of our boldness to say that the law is not the gospel, we we also are saying this the law is not evil, the law is not bad. But it is different than the promise of the gospel. It is different than the promise of salvation through faith alone. The text says that the law was not the means of attaining the promise. The law as a covenant. So often here we are right to speak of the law as the Ten Commandments, the abiding moral law of God. But sometimes in Scripture, the law is viewed as an entire covenant. The entirety of the Mosaic Covenant being pictured here. And the question is, is this against the promises of Christ or the promise of the gospel? Paul says, no, it serves it. But it is itself not the gospel. Verse 21 again, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law. For if there had been a set of commands to keep. For if there had been a given set of practices that you must do, for if there had been a list of things to do to continue to be faithful. You see, for if there had been a law given that could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise. The promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who do what, boys and girls? Believe. So here you have the distinction between law keeping. Law is a set of guidelines. Law is a covenant versus belief in the promise of God. Turn with me one book over to. Several books over to the book of Romans. Romans chapter four. The discussion of Abraham is given there as well, isn't it? Romans four, three, four. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works. The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Some translations say as what is due. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Paul says in verse 21, if there had been a law given which would have given life, saving life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But you and I both know that the scripture is clear that life through the law requires perfect obedience. This is not what any of us has. Leviticus 18:5, Galatians 3:12, no one can attain perfect obedience to the law. So in verse 22 we read this But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all those who believe. You see, the law serves God's overarching promise because it propels people to see their need for Christ. The law of God is used as a means to cause us to see our need for Christ. Many weeks. In fact, this week is a perfect example. A brother stood here in this pulpit and read the moral law of God. That part of the old covenant, yes, that God had inscribed on two stone tablets with his very finger. Now, boys and girls, God doesn't have a literal finger. But it was, as it were, the Old Testament telling us that the principles of who God is, that he has asked us to obey throughout all ages, God has specially made known. As we read that law this morning, our brother... He and I didn't speak about this, but our brother aptly prayed. When we see this law as believers, we know again and again and again our need to fall onto Christ. But Paul then gives two illustrations, doesn't he? Because here he's not only speaking about the Ten Commandments, but about this old covenant structure that was given Under Moses, that old covenant structure that these false teachers in Galatia are trying to convince believers to adopt. Hey, Jesus plus something. Jesus plus your faithfulness. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified, declared righteous by faith. Notice there are two illustrations that Paul uses here in the New King James Version. It says kept under guard by the law. It's like we are in prison, if you were, in that the law was protecting the promises and the people of God. That the law was a protective holding pattern, if you will, until Jesus would come. But in addition to this idea of a guard, Paul also says in verse 24 that it was a tutor. Now, boys and girls, here's how school would often work in Paul's day. Not really among the Jews, but among kind of the the Greeks and Romans of his day. Slave children would live in a house, with non-slave children and many rich individuals would have slaves that would be what would be called pedagogues. It's another word for teacher. And they would be the one charged with making sure that the children of the house, both slaves as well as the children of the master, were cared for and educated. And this is what Paul has in mind, that the law was a pedagogue, a tutor, The law told people God's commands and brought punishment for not doing it. And that's what a pedagogue in that day would do. Imagine that we we, we think of the word slavery and we think of the horrors of what happened in this particular country. But slavery then was a little bit different, still wrong, but different. The pedagogue was given quite a bit of permission to discipline all of the children of the house to make sure that they stayed in the educational way designed for them. Paul is essentially saying that the law was like a pedagogue, a tutor to bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. But now, he says in verse 25, now that faith has come, now that the mystery of Christ has been revealed, now that the gospel is proclaimed to Jew and to Gentile alike, after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the law as a covenant. Now, those of you who might be thinking, I thought we've said here before we're under the Ten Commandments. You are. You always have been and you always will be. But here, Paul has in mind this system that was meant to lead to Christ. So I hope you're seeing in all of these distinctions that Paul is clearly saying the law is not the promise, the law is not the gospel. But I want us to see, secondly, to this a related theme. Not only can we say, based on this text and many like it, that the law is not the gospel. That the law is not the promise of God. We can see, secondly, that the gospel is not accomplished by law. The gospel is not accomplished by law. Unless you mean Christ's perfect law keeping. Look what the text says, verse 25 again. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God, how through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to law. Oh, according to the promise. You could say that the great distinction of this section of Scripture is law and promise or law and gospel. A couple of notes here. How is it then that we are saved? Or we're saved through faith, verse 26, in Christ Jesus. How is it that we are justified? We are justified by faith, verse 24, in Christ. How is it that we are made Abraham's seed? By promise. Faith in God and the promise. So the true seed of Abraham are those who are in Christ, not those of the flesh. If we had several hours tonight, we'd walk through all of the verses of Scripture and talk about the promises given to Abraham and how we are to think about God's covenantal work. From Abraham moving forward. But thinking in this text specifically about this old covenant, Here's what the Puritan John Owen writes. He says this, quote, This covenant thus made, the old covenant, with these ends and promises, did never save nor condemn any man eternally. All that lived under the administration of it did attain eternal life or perished forever, but not by virtue of this covenant as formally such. The Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. It did indeed revive the commanding power and sanction of the first covenant of works. And in that respect, as the apostle speaks, was the ministry of condemnation. And on the other hand, it directed also to the promise, which was the instrument of life and salvation to all that did believe. But as to what it had of its own, it was confined to things temporal. Believers were saved under it, but not by virtue of it. Sinners perished eternally under it, but by the curse of the original law of works, end quote. Now, there's a lot there in what Owen is saying. He's talking about the old covenant, but then he points back, boys and girls, to the original law or covenant of works. This requires us to take a moment to understand what Paul has in view, because Paul talks about how there is a promise to Abraham, That promise, of course, is a furthering of the promise that we spoke of in the last two Sunday morning sermons. What is that promise? That God is going to send the skull crushing seed of the woman. But the way that we ought to understand scripture. Is that prior to the fall. Prior to Adam and Eve's fall into sin, there was another covenant arrangement. And it was not a covenant of grace. And this is crucial. God said to Adam and Eve before the fall, as they lived in the earthly temple garden of Eden, obey and live or obey and enter into glory. Obedience works were the terms Now, of course, God is always gracious to give us any breath that we have. But the covenant of works was not a covenant of grace. It was a covenant of works. And God put two trees in the garden. Remember those trees, boys and girls? And they are pictures, if you will, of God's promise in the covenant of works. Obedience, faithfulness during a time of testing would lead to eternal life. Disobedience or lack of faithfulness by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would lead to death. Adam and Eve, had they fully obeyed, had they not failed, would not have fallen short of the glory of God. But what does the text say about them and every human being except for Christ? For all have sinned and done what? Fallen short of the glory of God. This covenant of works is important because as we consider the old covenant, there is a kind of principle that is different than promise or grace or being saved by faith alone. See, Jesus was born under the law. Galatians 4, the next section. He kept the original Garden of Eden command in your place. And through him, a covenant of grace has been issued to all who will receive him by faith. And the terms of the covenant of grace are not like the terms of the covenant of works. Having life outside of Eden can never, ever, ever be accomplished by works because we are, as it were, already covenant breakers. One must come and represent us and keep covenant with God fully and completely in our stead. That we, having faith in him as the ultimate covenant keeper, As the law keeper might be justified by faith. If God doesn't give us righteousness, Galatians, Romans chapter 3, the righteousness of God revealed apart from the law. If God doesn't give us righteousness through the Son of God, we will never have it outside of Eden. Therefore, the law was our tutor. To bring us to Christ, verse 24, that we might be justified by faith. As we think of salvation, as we read the scriptures, we must understand that the law is not the gospel. The old covenant is not the gospel, but even the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. They are pure and clean and right, and we should with the psalmist love the law of God. But the law is not the gospel. And secondly, the gospel is not accomplished by us, by the law. And We don't often do this, but I want to give you just a few examples, because if we were to stop right here, we might be thinking, yes, praise the Lord for the reformation. Because it. It took the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and it refined it and purified it and returned it, if you will, to the understanding that we are, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone. That it is not through a system of keeping works that we enter this gospel arrangement, nor is it through a system of works that we keep ourselves in it. But it might be... Helpful before we close for us to understand that there are more subtle aspects of this same issue. Perhaps subtle aspects among some who are our brothers and sisters in the faith. We might be thinking, well, the Reformation is finished. We're all clear on Galatians. There's absolutely no reason for us to wonder if people are talking about being saved through our own faithfulness. But perhaps it's not that there are believers and unbelievers. Perhaps it's that even in some of our own Reformed circles, there are some who are less clear, who need to be clearer. Let me give you a few examples. Here's the overarching head of these examples. Here's the title of these examples. Never proclaim gospel fruit as the gospel itself. Never proclaim gospel fruit, to include law keeping, as the gospel itself. This is actually happening in some reform circles, brothers and sisters. These are circles, I believe, I hope, of brothers and sisters, but who are being less clear about these kinds of things. And it's concerning. For instance, those of you that like big words, I'll give them to you. If you don't like big words, I'll seek to explain them. There are some in the Reformed camp who, differing from their own confessions, whether that's the Westminster Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, differing from those catechisms, actually argue something known as monocovenantalism. Boys and girls, mono means one. Covenantalism, the view of covenants. Their understanding of Scripture is that it's really all one covenant, that even the Garden of Eden was a covenant of grace. Now, this might just be academic preacher kind of pickiness. How do we say things? All of those kinds of things. You might be thinking, well, what does that matter? If we say that God's command to Adam and Eve was not a covenant of works, but it was a gracious covenant then we risk, as we continue to read the Bible, to say that calls to obey are still grace. There's a reason why we must understand that the scripture is to be understood as a covenant of works, broken, all of us, and a covenant of grace, Christ's obedience, and through him alone we are saved. In mono-covenantalism, there's a confusion over what is law and what is grace, because the very covenant of works that said, obey me and enter into glory has been called grace. But it's not. It was a covenant of works. And so if you read that way all throughout the Bible, then law commands for obedience start to be listed as Grace. And the propagation and preaching of the gospel sometimes gets mixed in with words like law. Now, we must understand that God had a covenant of works. And then when humanity broke it in Adam, he has given us a covenant of grace. There are people who hold to a mono covenantalism view. And they seek then... To take the call of Eden to the rest of the world. That doesn't sound bad. Don't we all want to do that in some sense? Don't we want the glory of God to to cover the entire globe from one end to the other? Well, yes. But if God's original covenant was gracious, even though we're sinners and we have Christ now, and the command of the gospel is to really carry Eden to all cultures, then the gospel becomes culture-making. So you see movements like Reconstructionism or Theonomy, which essentially says the preaching of the gospel must include the fact that we should transform governments all over the world using God's law. Again, we don't often do this, but I think some examples are necessary. Listen to this quote. This is by a mono-covenantalist, Joe Boot. He writes in one of his books. So in the gospel... Christ comes to make it possible for us to again fulfill our calling to serve God. To give back to him his world, developed and flourishing. End quote. This would be news to the Apostle Paul. I would remind you, brothers, first Corinthians, of what the gospel is and what is the gospel. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. The gospel to be proclaimed from this pulpit and pulpits all across the globe is not that God has given you the ability to work and to be faithful. That's not the gospel. That's the fruit of the gospel. But that's not the gospel. Or in a discussion on how we need to. Have the abolition of abortion, which yes we do, we would agree. The statement by this brother was something to the effect of proclaiming the sixth commandment as it relates to the eradication of abortion is part of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, working to end abortion. And telling people that we need to eradicate abortion is not the gospel. The gospel is Christ and him crucified. One other example. The writer says this quote, most biblically orthodox believers understand the kernel of the gospel to be the good news that the salvation of sinners is accomplished by Jesus Christ. Through his death for our sins and resurrection from the grave. This means that by faith and repentance, we are rescued from the judgment we deserve for our sins. And so the way is open to heaven. This account is correct as far as it goes. But as the evangelical cultural theologian Andrew Sandlin, a mono-covenantalist, has pointed out, it doesn't go far enough. writing quote this common description is necessary but not sufficient you can't have the gospel without it but you need more than this to have the gospel you see when eden is pictured as gracious you begin to read the entirety of scripture through the lens of the gospel is making the world like eden but that's a fruit that often comes from the gospel what is the gospel Christ and him crucified. We are justified by faith in the promise, not by our faithfulness. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, there's a lack of clarity, even in resources that many of us read. Listen to this quote from the book Reformed is Not Enough by Douglas Wilson. Quote, the means by which men apostatize from the covenant is unfaithfulness. The means by which men persevere in the covenant is faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, our brother has been really confusing here because I have to attest to you. If I'm going to stay in the covenant of grace by my faithfulness, it's over. It's done. I will never be faithful enough to stay in covenant with God. How is it that we are to read the scriptures? God has given us a covenant of works and we have broken it. And we are covenant breakers, deserving his wrath. And God would be perfectly just to end it all there. But he gave a promise. Satan, I'm going to send the skull crushing seed of the woman. He's going to crush your head. That promise continues all throughout the scriptures. It's enlarged by farther steps, our confession says. Abraham, the seed is going to come through you and your family. Believe the promise. And he does, and it's accounted as righteousness. I'm going to take your family and make it into a nation and I'm going to give them a covenant, a Mosaic covenant that keeps them, guards them, tutors them until Christ comes. That what? Jew and Gentile alike might be justified by what? Faith in Christ. Christ comes. He keeps a covenant of works. This week I heard someone say this so soul nourishing to me. I often think about having faith in Christ as the one who died for my sins. But this pastor theologian was having a discussion and he said something simple and it's been with me off and on throughout the week. We have faith in Christ who is our law keeper. Yes, we have been given the law to obey out of gracious gratitude to God. But Christ perfectly keeps the law in our stead. Have you told a lie this week, boys and girls? God will forgive you if you ask for forgiveness because of what Christ has done. But you know what? Christ never lied. And it's his record of never lying that is placed on your account if you're a believer. Have you struggled with lust or sexual temptation this week, believer? Christ never sexually sinned. When you have faith in him, you have the righteousness of Christ according to his humanity, who never lusted, credited to you. So when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about covenants, we need to be absolutely clear that the means by which men persevere in the covenant is not their own faithfulness. It is the faithfulness of Christ credited to our account With the sealing work of the spirit. This then works its way down into trying to make Eden fit everywhere as the gospel. Preferences or words of wisdom for living become almost gospel like. Movements. If you're really a Christian, you'll have this size of a family. If your family is really a Christian, this is what it will look like. And many of those things are absolutely true in a sense. But if we begin to speak of the fruit of the gospel. Fruit like men leading their homes. Men looking like men and women looking like women. These are good things. People. People. Having godly marriages and raising children. These are good things. But brothers and sisters, this is fruit of the gospel. It is not the gospel. And we have to be absolutely clear as we take in so many of the wonderful resources in the reformed world that are around us. That we are constantly on guard. That we don't miss the subtle, very nuanced kind of way of saying, law and gospel really are the same. Because they're not. Law. Do this and live. Gospel. He did it. Now go and live. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let us pursue, brothers and sisters, gospel fruit. Let us call for abortion, abolition all over the world. Let us keep God's law. Let us raise godly families. Let us want to see nations come to revival by his spirit. But in it all, let's never say that's the gospel. The gospel is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Christ did for you. Come, believe the promise. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us. Help us as we seek to be faithful to the gospel and to uphold the goodness of your law. To remember that Christ has hushed the thunder of condemnation that the law brings and he has accomplished it all. So we rest in Him for forgiveness Thank you for listening to we this rest week's in him episode for of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological we seek Seminary. To obey,
1: CBTS to is a confessional reformed Baptist seminary which
0: provides affordable online theological but education to help the church in its calling to train faithful Jesus. men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit CBTseminary.org.